Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Greg Prado about his book, Too High to Die, Meet the Meat Puppets, self-published in 2012 at lulu.com. An oral history, Too High to Die, traces Meat Puppets' history through stories told by Kurt Kirkwood, Chris Kirkwood, and Derek Bostrom, the band's three original members, as well as Ted Marcus and Shandon Somm, members of the band's most recent incarnations. There are also interviews with other musicians significant in the lives of Meat Puppets. Paul Leary, Chuck Dukowski, Henry Rollins, Mike Watt, Brian Ritchie, Dean DeLeo, Flea, Grant Hart, and Dave Pernier offer informative anecdotes. Many who have been involved with the band in countless other ways in their career are also included. Joe Carducci, Joseph Cultus, Dave Markey, and Pete Anderson give their insights. There are many others, girlfriends, grunge rockers, childhood friends, other former band members, and more. What binds them together is that they are all meatheads, dedicated fans of the band. Prado covers all periods of Meat Puppet's career. He begins with the Phoenix, Arizona childhoods of brothers Kurt and Chris and their friend Derek, moves through the band's formation and integration into the Los Angeles punk scene, onto their recording relationship with SST Records, their move in the early 90s to the major label London Records where they achieved their greatest commercial success, their classic rock drug-fueled crash and burn in the mid-90s, and their reemergence on the scene, strong as ever, in 2007. Along the way, Prado provides stories concerning all of the band's records, trippy tales from their incessant touring, their appearance with Nirvana, and an extended account of Chris's meltdown and reemergence. All in all, this is a book meatheads everywhere have been waiting for. It's the story of a majorly important band as told through the words of its peers. Greg Prado lives in Long Island, New York, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Greg, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. All right. Well, let, uh, let's talk about your book about meat puppets. Well, well before we get to that, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your biography? Sure. I'm from uh, Long Island, New York, and I've been writing since about 1997. And I write for uh, a few places, primarily uh, Rolling Stone. I do uh, things for them. And I'm also the author of uh, several books. Uh, my first book came out a few years ago called Grunge is Dead, which is, uh, excuse me, my first book that came out was a book about Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon called The Devil on uh, One Shoulder. And then uh, shortly after that, I put out a book called Grunge is Dead, which is one of my uh, more popular books. Uh, and I've done a total of nine books so far. And uh, earlier this year, I put out a book about the Meat Puppets, which is uh, one of my favorite all-time bands. And I'm uh, pretty happy with how it came out. How did you get into to writing about uh, rock and roll? I know you write about some sports as well. Yeah. How, specifically, how did you get into writing about rock and roll? Well, I've been a fan of rock music for as long as I can remember. Um, so, you know, I've always uh, listened. And then I started listening to a wide variety of music as you know, I got a little bit older. But the uh, Meat Puppets uh, were always a, a favorite band of mine. And um, but, you know, besides the uh, Meat Puppets, just as far as getting into uh, writing, 
Uh, I took a job uh, as a customer service rep a few years ago, uh, back in 1997, and I, uh, at a at a uh, music magazine, and I saw how easy it was to write. So I just took the plunge, and at that point, that's when the internet was kind of booming, and I was able to get my foot in the door with a few places, and then I just took it from there, writing as a freelancer uh, over the years, and then yeah, like I said, a few years ago, uh, taking the plunge with books. And uh, that's pretty much how I got started as a writer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Before we get specifically into meat puppets, uh, you've—is uh, it—is it correct to say you've self-published this book? Tell us about Lulu.com a little bit. Yeah. Um. To me personally, it seems like uh, the publishing industry is uh, going the way of the dodo. Pretty much. Uh, it seems similar to uh, how record companies just pretty much died a few years ago. Um. The main publishers seem to be a little bit out of touch. Like they still go by the old rules, like you need an agent to get through to them. And, uh, they pre, like I've had a few experiences where they won't even listen to you because they only have a set, like number of, uh, authors that they're going to pretty much okay for their books. So, um, I've tried in the past to get, I mean, some, I have two books that came out through a, through an actual publisher called ECW Press. Um, one book is the book I mentioned before called Grunge is Dead, and my other book is called Sack Exchange, which came out uh, about a year ago, which is about the 1980s New York Jets football team. But all my other books I've put out self-published because uh, I just like to be in control of, uh, you know, my creation sort of. Um, you know, I, I have confidence in myself. That I know what I'm doing and that uh, the final product will be, uh, you know, good kind of. I, I Pretty much every single book, well, no, I could say definitely every single book I've done is on a subject that uh, I personally liked and I wanted to see a book written about that subject and there wasn't a book. So I'm lucky that I was able to just go out and get you know interviews with people about the certain subjects and everything and actually do those books. But um, yeah, getting back to the self-publishing thing, I came across Lulu.com uh, through a uh, news article um, a while back. And um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with uh, how they do their books. They're as good quality as the majority of the uh, professional published books. So I think they do a, a you know good job with that. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it's still a, it's still a riddle how you uh, get through to these big publishers. I mean, I think you need an agent, but the agents I've dealt with so far haven't been very good. So who knows? I mean. Personally, I think it's just a matter of time until most of the publishers are gone anyway, because with these uh, self, because by self-publishing, you pretty much get your books on like Amazon.com and all these online sale places and all these, uh, all these, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bookstores, they're all pretty much dying as well. So pretty soon I think we're all really going to have things like Amazon.com. And if you don't need a major uh, publisher to do that, what's the point of going to a major? publisher and having to give them a cut of the sales and everything you could just get it all yourself or get at least a, a bigger cut by doing it yourself through a uh, self-publisher right I, I hope i can quote that line when you say what do you call them bookstores yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean it's you know sad because i i definitely did like to used to go to bookstores and just sit down and read books i mean the same with also uh, record stores you know but uh yeah it just seems like uh you know you just have to you know, with the you know times, they're changing, and you have to adapt. So it seems like uh, people are all about buying things online nowadays. 
one more thing before we get specifically to the book. Tell us a little bit about the genre that you 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 you've settled into a little bit of of oral histories. How how tell us about oral histories, please. Yeah, I first discovered I first discovered oral history books by a book called uh, Please uh, Kill Me, which came out in the mid to late '90s, which was about uh, the '70s punk scene in uh, New York with you know, like CBGBs and bands like the Ramones and the Dead Boys and Blondie. And uh, I found it to be a really great uh, way to put a book together. Pretty much what it is for people that don't know what oral history is, is there'll be a chapter where there'll be a subject. Um, I'd say, for instance, with my uh, Meat Puppets book, if the subject is uh, when the Meat Puppets played with uh, Nirvana, that'll be the subject. And then that whole chapter is all the people talking about their memories, about playing the Nirvana Unplugged special, how they got in contact with Nirvana and all those types of things. So it's kind of like a book form of a, a film uh, documentary is kind of how I like to look at it. And uh, all my books so far have been in that format because I just like that the, that the reader is getting the story straight from the horse's mouth and straight from people that were actually there. Uh, before I was even a, a book author, the favorite type of writing I like to read in magazines like Rolling Stone and Spin were uh, Q&As with people, you know, rather than an author giving their take on something when they weren't even there. You know, I, I, I just kind of like to have the actual definitive word, and I feel like you get that way the best by using the oral history format. Uh, in what way does does your voice, the author's voice, come through in an oral history? Well, I mean, there's a few of my books where I have just um, an opening paragraph uh, for each chapter just explaining what's going on. But, I mean, as the author, I guess I'm, you could say, like the director almost has, how, as like a film would be, that I'm interviewing the people, I'm coming up with the questions, I, know, I have to kind of make the chapters and also the story flow and, and make it also coherent. Because, I mean, when you're speaking to people for books, you're not asking the same questions to each person. Each person is coming in at different times of the story. So it's really, I guess you could say, similar to a director or someone when they're making a, a film, a documentary. You know, you have all these uh, Q&As with people and then you have to edit it and you have to put it, you know, according to the specific subjects that it's making store. It's, it's, it's making sense and that the story is uh, flowing. So let's get to the Me Puppets book then. Um, and, and just for a brief moment, sticking with the oral history part. Mm -hmm. How did you decide who to interview? And I imagine there are some people you weren't able to interview. Yeah, for the most part with this book, I was able to uh, get a lot of people that we set out to uh, get. Um, I, I, I've been friendly with Kurt Kirkwood, the singer and um, guitarist for the band for a while. I interviewed him a few years ago for Rolling Stone. We became friendly over the years. And uh, I then uh, got in contact with their uh, manager, uh, Dennis uh, Pulowski. And I told him that I would like to do a book. And uh, he said, sure. And, you know, I, I think I sent him maybe one of my other books. And uh, he, you know, definitely dug that. And then they were a big help with putting me in contact with people because uh, Dennis, you know, has some very good uh, contacts. You know, so he was able to put me in contact with uh, a lot of people. That was uh, nice. And then also just for me being a writer for so long, I, I also had a lot of uh, contacts with uh, people. Too. So we kind of just pulled it together and uh, that's how we were able to come up with everyone. And off the top of my head, I can't really think of too many people or really anyone that we tried to get that we couldn't. I'm trying to think. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, we were able to get a lot of pretty good names. Like, we were able to get Kim Thiel from Soundgarden, Flea from the Chili Peppers, uh, Henry Rollins, okay, a uh, email a Q&A, which was very nice of him. Uh, we were able to interview all of the uh, Meat Puppets members. Well, I mean, not, not all. Not, th- th- there was a brief period in the early uh, 2000s where there were a few members that I didn't speak to because that was just like a brief version of the band. But I was able to interview the 80s version of the band, which is considered the uh, classic version. And um, I was able to also interview uh, Derek uh, Bostrom, who was the uh, original Meat Puppets drummer, who hasn't been in the band since 1995. So that was good to be able to speak to him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I think we definitely nailed it with getting the uh, definitive story of the band. Get into the definitive story of the band. Um, the band, uh, starting with what you call the classic version, then, is Kurt Kirkwood, mm-hmm. uh, his brother Chris, and Derek. Tell us – tell us. Um, we'll, we'll try and go kind of in the order of your book if we can. So sure. may, maybe a little bit of their early life and, and how do they get together as a band. Well, they're originally from uh, Arizona, Phoenix, I believe. And um, there's a, a pretty, uh, you know, if you uh, read the book, the uh, Kirkwood's early years are really crazy. That could be just like a book in itself. Um, they came from a uh, divorced, uh, they came from a, a divorced household. And um, the their uh, mother was, uh, you know, very, very kind and nice, but seems like she had um, a problem with some of the uh, people or some of her subsequent husbands and boyfriends. There was one guy that had a drinking problem that wound up uh, setting their like house on fire or something, which is crazy and all that. And, um, you know, I, I think it was Carter Chris says that that type of stuff definitely affected the way that they grew up and even some of their uh, music, you could say. But um, they uh, met Derek uh, in the late 70s through I think, uh, mutual friends. And uh, they were all into uh, b- before they met Derek. I think they were into pretty much like classic rock and fusion and stuff. And maybe a little bit of punk rock, but it wasn't until they met Derek that Derek turned them on to all the great punk rock bands of the day, like uh, the Germs and Black Flag and uh, the Stooges and things like that. And that's how they formed their union and eventually formed the Meat Puppets in about 1980. Do you know before they, they start to record? I don't know, can you just repeat that? It, uh, it uh, broke up a little bit. Sorry. Uh, how, how long were they together, do you know, before they started to record? Uh, they, I think they started to do demos pretty much straight away. Uh, their first album came out, I believe it was in 1982. Uh, the, uh, and actually, I take that back. They put out an EP called uh, In a Car, which came out, I believe, in 1981. And their first uh, album came out in 82, just called Meat Puppets. So it was uh, probably just a few months before they started demoing. And I think they started playing shows pretty much right away. And originally, the uh, drummer Derek was the main songwriter, but uh, shortly thereafter... Uh, Kurt uh, Kirkwood became the uh, main songwriter and singer, and that's when the uh, Meat Puppets sound, as we know it, started to get solidified. Uh, so their their first full length record um, is on SST Records. Tell us tell us a bit about SST Records, please. Yeah, yeah SST Records was uh, created by the band uh, Black Flag. And uh, they went on to become one of the top indie rock record, uh, indie rock labels um, of the 80s and pretty much beyond. They've uh, it's really, really impressive. The uh, bands they've had on their uh, label throughout the years, they put out bands like the Minutemen, Bad Brains, Soundgarden, and of course, also uh, Black Flag and also the Meat Puppets, too. So it's very impressive, the uh, roster and also the talent that they were able to, uh, you know, find and things like you know it uh in the uh, book uh someone says that greg Jin, who was the uh, black flag guitarist 
was one of the best A&R people uh, that they've pretty much ever seen because, you know, his besides being a, a guitarist and everything, he, he was able to spot bands that would go on to uh, become great bands. So he was definitely a big part of that label. I think well, I think Husker Du. Did you say Husker Du? I think they were on. They put out a record yes, or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. skipped Husker Du. So yeah, that, that that's also a great band that they were able to put uh, some albums out as well. Did you get any information about how how did uh, Meat Puppets uh, uh, come in contact with SST? Uh, uh, the Meat Puppets played a show or two with uh, Black Flag, and I believe it was Chuck Dukowski, their bass player, or it was Greg. Um, approached the band and said, you know, we should, uh, you know, possibly work together. And then they were uh, able to uh, get together. And the Meat Puppets put out albums uh, through SST up till, I think the last one was 1989. So it was throughout the whole entire 80s that they put out albums together. And then uh, in the early 90s, the Meat Puppets uh, made the jump to a major label with uh, London Records. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to some of their earlier records, though. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So you say... Uh, the first record is is uh, has a lot of Derek on it, Derek Bostrom, the drummer, and then moving into the second one, which is considered, you know, by many of uh, uh, people like you, rock critics and stuff, to, to be a classic record. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh. And many people do say this that, that there's a, a a real jump, a difference between those first two records. Can you can you talk to that subject a little bit? The difference between the first record and the second record. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, just by listening to uh, all these bands throughout the years, I, I can't think of another band that made such a big jump as the Meat Puppets between the first and second album. Uh, the first album is very noisy. It almost sounds like some of the songs weren't even written beforehand. But I did find out that they actually were written beforehand. It's just that that's the sound that they wanted. And I believe they also uh, did Acid or like LSD or something prior to the uh, recording. So. That, I guess, may have also uh, contributed to how it came out, like a very noisy record. But the uh, second album, which came out, which was recorded in 1983, but didn't come out until 1984 for some reason. Um, it was uh, a merger of punk rock and also um, country music. And that, to me, is definitely uh, a groundbreaking album. Uh, when you think of also when it came out in 1984, you know, like what was popular at that time. As far as rock bands, you know, if you put on uh, MTV, you'd see Van Halen and like, you know, Motley Crue and things like that. Um, the very bold original thing uh, that I mean, and, and also besides the fact that uh, punk uh, fans, I think, didn't know what the hell to make of that style of music in the uh, book. The uh, Kirkwood Brothers talk about opening up for a black flag in uh, 1984 and uh, trying to play that stuff for a, a black flag audience and just getting pelted with trash and just uh, not being treated very kindly. And, um, yeah, that, that uh, to me, is probably my favorite Meat Puppets album. I know it was a huge influence on uh, on Kurt uh, Cobain because he went on to cover three of those songs on Nirvana's Unplugged in uh, 1993. So, uh, yeah, that, uh, to me. And I also discovered uh, that album uh, by reading an interview with Kim Thiel from Soundgarden in about 1989 in a magazine called Rip, which is no longer around. I was reading an article because uh, I was such a big Soundgarden fan, and he uh, talked about a bunch of bands and albums that he uh, suggested people should check out, and that was one of them, and I eventually did check out a Meat Puppets album and was blown away. It, it, it seems almost like a um, uh, just 
meat puppets were were kind of the victims of historical circumstance because you know I get the feeling in the book and, and other things I've read that they've never really considered themselves to be punk rockers but they kind of you know they just got kind of thrown in to, to this scene. Yeah, I mean, something I've always loved about the Meat Puppets is they're one of the few bands that uh, never shy away from any style. If they want to write like a jazz song, they'll do a jazz song. If they want to do a country song, they'll do a country song. If they want to do like a heavy metal song, they'll do that. There's really, uh, I mean, just about every single style of music. You know, I And that's also what Chris Kirkwood says is that to him, music was just music that, you know, there should be no boundaries everything you know and 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 that to me i think even reflects how i listen to music today i listen to pretty much everything at this point and uh you know again not that that doesn't really translate well to like you know every single band but i definitely i definitely think it translated well to the meat puppets and that i think became their uh trademark too that they could uh, handle just about like any you know style put in front of them and if you look at the wide variety of uh bands they've also played with over the years that also covers a lot of ground as well you know the industry and um how do you think that this this uh, approach of theirs has has affected their their commercial success this you know that they're they'll play anything and doesn't that make it uh, difficult to from a marketing perspective well i don't think it really did because their uh, biggest album was in 1994 called uh, too high to die and, uh, you know, that album was, uh, that, that, that had a wide variety of songs and that went on to be a, uh, gold selling record. And, uh, you know, and we also just discussed the, uh, second Me Puppets album that has, you know, country music, punk music, folk music. It has like several different styles. You know, there's bands like, uh, David Bowie, Neil Young. They've done wide variety of, uh, different styles and they, they, they were able to attract a large audience. I, you know, like, like, like I was saying before, some bands can pull it off. Some, you know, some bands, their audience can handle, you know, a pretty big wide variety of styles. And then there's other bands that have a following that just want them to, you know, hone in on one style and just keep at it. You know, so the Meat Puppets are lucky that they were able to uh, attract an audience like that. You've already kind of touched on this, but you devote an entire chapter uh, with with an interview with, with Kim Thiel. Um, what is your thinking around that? Well, I became friendly with Kim when I interviewed him for my book called uh, Grunge is Dead, which came out a few years ago. And uh, after interviewing him, we remained in contact and we've become friends over the years. And, um, yeah, I interviewed him for the book because, like I said before, uh, the, I originally discovered the Meat Puppets by reading a uh, thing that he did in a Rip magazine talking about how uh, the Meat Puppets 2 was one of the best albums and you should check it out. But uh, that wasn't the first album I checked out of there. The first album was uh, Forbidden Places, which uh, I, ha- I happened to buy because I belonged to a CD club at the time. And that was the only Me Puppets album. And that's I got into that. But um, yeah, but getting back to uh, Kim in the book, he um, when I was interviewing him for the book, it turns out that really the first album is his favorite uh, Me Puppets album. And uh, he told me a pretty long but interesting story about how he uh, discovered it, how he was a DJ at the time for his college radio station. And um, he at first uh, didn't like the album and pretty much trashed it. He gave it like a low rating. And then uh, later it slowly uh, grew on him. And uh, it was actually Ben Shepard's brother, Ben Shepard being Soundgarden's current bassist. Ben Shepard's brother, uh, Kim, roomed with at the time. And it was uh, him. His name is Henry Shepard, I believe, uh, told Kim, no, you know, you should give that a second listen. It's actually a, a pretty good album. And that's how he uh, gave it a second chance and listened to it a bunch of times. And he said that became one of his uh, 
top albums. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's one of his favorite albums of all time, if I'm not mistaken. So, so it seems like one of the angles in your book is your, is your, maybe this is back to the people you had access to, but it seems one of your main angles is Meat Puppet's influence on grunge and alternative from the early 90s. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, they were a pretty big influence. If you hear bands like Nirvana and also Soundgarden, even a band like the uh, Stone Temple Pilots has gone on to say how much they love the Meat Puppets and they've toured with them a bunch of times. Um, I mean, uh, the uh, Meat Puppets, you know, again, it's hard to uh, pin them down to one sound, but it seems like the uh, bands from Seattle uh, from the early 90s uh, were all pretty big fans of the uh, Meat Puppets. Like, I know the, the guys from uh, Mud Honey were, uh, were were big fans of them. I interviewed Mark Arm for the book. And, um, yeah, for some reason, it just seems like those uh, grunge bands, I guess, uh, found, you know, stuff about the meat puppets that they could uh, use for their own sound. With especially those those two records, Too High to Die and then and then Next No Joke. Mm-hmm. Uh that that um Kurt and Meat Puppets were um they were conscious uh, of the grunge scene and, and they were willing to make as willing as Meat Puppets are to make a grunge sounding record. Do you think so? Yeah, I think definitely, because if you listen to um, in the late 80s, well, actually mid to late 80s, they shifted from being like a raw punk band then to they started uh, experimenting with uh, synthesizer guitar and also electronic drums, which I personally love those albums. It's uh, not like that they were trying to sell out to try to get on radio or anything. It's just that that's happened to be the type of technology that they were able to uh, put their hands on and they incorporated it into their sound and then by the uh by 1991 the album uh, forbidden places they went back a little bit more to their uh, country roots a bit so i guess uh, it just made sense uh in 1993 you know with nirvana and everything so popular that they uh, went back to kind of like the raw sound of their uh, early albums but it was a bit more produced even though it was produced by the guitarist of uh, butthole surfers so it wasn't like uh they're working with uh, mutt lang or someone like that and um yeah, so I guess it was a, a conscious, uh, you know, uh, decision to uh, do that. But I personally, I think that that Too High to Die album is one of my favorite Meat Puppets albums. I think the sound of it, the performance, the songs, everything, I think that's one of the strongest Meat Puppets albums. Go back again to the the early 80s. Um, you, 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 they were on SST and Black Flag, of course, were, uh, you know, uh, trailblazers creating a whole you know, touring circuit for, for indie rock bands. Um, talk about the Meat Puppets early touring, uh, days and maybe tell some stories from your books from the early days. Yeah, well, um, I think I'm trying to give a really good story, uh, the early tours. Um, well, there was a lot, there's some stories about, you know, something that you don't really keep in, uh, or that something that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of these bands at the time had to be driving their own vans and everything like that. And there were certain, there were actually several times, I believe, that uh, either due to uh, maybe too much uh, smoking pot or maybe just being too uh, too tired after a, a show, there were one or two times where uh, they almost got into horrible, uh, you know, car crashes or I guess actually like, you know, van crashes and things like that. So there's like one or two stories about that, how uh, Kurt, I think, once drove off a uh, road and like at the last second swerved back and he was headed for a tree or something. And uh, there's also a very colorful story that Chris tells about um, 
him uh, again. I think he was on acid or something, and uh, they uh, were touring in New York City, and they went to a, a camp, uh, a campground on uh, Long Island to uh, spend the night. And at the time, they were touring in a uh, RV, I believe. And uh, he was uh, so like out of it, he didn't know what what he was doing, and he was emptying out, I guess, to uh, empty out the uh, the 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 van's uh, septic tank or whatever you take a big um, tube or something like a hose out of the van and you put it into the ground and to, and then it just like empties out. And he didn't realize that the uh, hole that he was emptying out into was, uh, I guess like full already. And it started completely like overflowing and he didn't know what it was exactly. Cause he was so stoned. He thought it was like a big blob or something. And it was, uh, so I think at like the uh, last uh, minute they were able to pull it out and just, they packed up everything and sped off before people could realize what the hell they were doing because it was also right by, uh, I think, I think, uh, Chris could see that it was overflowing so much that the, uh, stuff from the septic tank was, uh, it was like a, it was like a big blob that would just kept growing bigger and bigger and actually went towards people's tents that were camped out. I think it even may have like, <laughs> Somehow, like, went into the tent side. <laughs> People obviously weren't very pleased when they woke up being engulfed in all that disgusting uh, gunk and junk. So they were able to uh, speed off after that, and I guess they, they wound up never getting caught. end of that story was Chris is saying that uh, now somebody else has a story to tell about the time they were camping and fluorescent doo-doo came into their tent. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about... Uh, the Meat Puppets is a live act. I think there's there's a difference between quite a bit of difference between their their recordings and uh, they built their reputation really live. I think, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Definitely touring because I mean in the 80s, you know, MTV and radio weren't playing bands that were on uh, SST records or really playing like any of those um, bands that were like you know underground at the time. So pretty much the only thing those bands could do was just tour and tour and tour. So that's what uh, the Meat Puppets did. And, um, yeah, if you listen to the bootlegs and also they put out, I think, uh, one or two live albums later on, uh, actually, you know, from that era, but it was, it was released maybe about 10 or 20 years after the fact. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you, you couldn't tell what the Meat Puppets were going to do that night. Either they would, uh, jam wildly or they would throw in weird covers or they'd come out dressed in all weird costumes, you know, which I, I think is great. That's the complete opposite of like, you know, a, um, show from these big, uh, bands that were playing stadiums where it's a set set list and uh set you know costumes and choreography this is something completely different you know definitely back to the early days of rock and uh yeah they uh i definitely were one of the more uh daring live bands especially when you think like i mentioned before when they would open for bands like uh black flag and they'd come out and uh, do you know these like long country jams and they would do uh grateful dead covers and all these other weird covers like they would cover a song from i think the king and i and things like that, and um, I know they'd cover uh, Everly Brothers songs. It's like they would do things just to pretty much piss off the audience, which I uh, personally think is great because I'm a big fan of uh, of uh, what's his name, uh, Andy Kaufman, and uh, his uh, type of comedy seemed like he would try to piss off the audience. So I'm always a big fan of uh, people that are daring and uh, you know try to get a, a reaction out of the audience a bit. So now, uh, what about the move? Uh, again, it seems like a pretty pretty different records. If you go from Meat Puppets to to their next one, Up on the Sun, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I would say that Meat Puppets too, and also uh, Up on the Sun are probably my two favorite albums of theirs. And um, 
for uh, Up on the Sun, they wanted to make a, a psychedelic record. So suddenly they shift gears from country now to a, a psychedelic kind of like mellow album. And uh, the singing is maybe a little bit, uh, I mean, I, I was going to say tuneful, but one of the Meat Puppets trademarks, especially in the 80s, was uh, vocals that were not in tune. I mean, not they were completely out of, out of tune, but they were, you know, not like right. I mean, especially now with all this like, you know, auto-tune stuff, it was definitely different from that. And um, it's a more uh, trippy record. Um, the uh, title track is probably one of their most uh, famous songs, or at least popular with their uh, fan base. That's kind of like a uh, mellow uh, sound. I mean, it's kind of hard to even explain what it sounds like. If you picture maybe the Grateful Dead as like a punk band or something, or uh, a punk band maybe very stoned, or, you know, it's the complete opposite of the first album where it's just complete noise and very violent. This is more mellow and uh, kind of like, you know, laid back sort of. You've made this connection now once or twice. And I know uh, Kurt Kirkwood is, uh, and Chris, maybe Derek as well, uh, have, were always fans of the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't you think you can see it in the, in their music and their live shows as well, Meat Puppets and the Grateful Dead connection? Yeah, the Grateful Dead and also uh, Neil Young, I see quite a bit of a uh, connection there as well. Yeah, with the uh, jamming and stuff, they would often do uh, jamming. And uh, yeah, I know that also uh, Chris uh, Kirkwood says that Phil uh, Lesh was one of his uh, top uh, bass influences. And uh, yeah, you, you could definitely hear that in uh, some of his playing. But, uh, yeah, Kurt uh, Kirkwood is also, I think, one of Rock's most uh, underrated guitarists. There's even a chapter in the book uh, which, uh, you know, people just talk about how he's a uh, you know, great guitarist. And how, you know, you put any style in front of him and he can you know, pretty much pull it off great. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just a, a testament to how the Meat Puppets are very uh, underrated uh, players on their on their instruments. If, uh, I don't know if you've seen him recently, but, you know, now maybe more than ever. They're just like the dead. They're they're willing to completely deconstruct, you know, mm-hmm. any structure on any of their songs. Sometimes yeah. these long, long jams. Yeah, actually, I was I, I was lucky to see them uh, last year, and I can honestly say that they're as good a live band now, maybe even better than when I. But the the first time that I ever saw them live was in 1995 on the uh, No uh, Joke tour. And that was when Chris Kirkwood was uh, bad off with drugs. He, as people will learn in the book, he uh, got very badly addicted to uh, heroin in the uh, 90s and also early 2000s and uh, went through some really horrible ordeals in his life, wound up going to jail for a while, wound up getting shot, too, and almost killed. Um, but that was the beginning of his, you know, I guess, uh, bad period. And uh, the show I saw in 1995 wasn't together at all, and it seemed like that they weren't on the same page and it, you know, I I would see videos of them and things of them playing live, and it was just fantastic. And then I, and then I saw that show, and I was kind of let down. But um, when I saw them last year, uh, it was as good as those old videos you see of them. You know, it was definitely inspired. It was very tight, uh, great great set list, and uh, I I think that their 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 singing and also harmonies now are better than than I would say ever. And uh, Kurt and Chris are still great players, and their drummer now, uh, Shannon Som is a great, great uh, player, too. I think he's um, a fine um, addition to the band as well. And they also have uh, Kurt's uh, son, uh, Elmo, playing second guitar, so it's even a heavier, fuller sound now. So, yeah, I would I would highly recommend, if the Meat Puppets come around to a town near you, to uh, check them out. They're definitely a great live act. Um, do you think the... Uh 
I'm playing off chapter 10 now. Do you, do you think the Kirkwoods and Derek, especially in the early days, they see themselves as, as artists beyond being musicians? Yeah, that's the thing that I know that um, they, uh, they 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 were also all involved in art and drawing and also cartoon work. I know I know that there's uh, some uh, talk in there where um, Kurt uh, Kurt talks about how he uh, is really into all these different um, cartoonists and also all these other people. And and uh, Chris also is a very good artist himself. I know that he has done paintings and he also draws little doodles for fans when they ask and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they were artists, I think, in the purest sense of the word, whether it was drawing, music, you know, I think that they, they definitely respected arts, they definitely respected art of all kinds. On album covers, right? The, the paintings on the albums. Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, Kurt did a lot of those album covers, including, uh, the best known ones like Meat Puppets 2, and also, uh, Up on the Sun, and Derek did, uh, Mirage. And uh, I know Chris did uh, the uh, inside artwork of uh, Two Eye to Die. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they've all uh, contributed artwork over the years. And I know some of Chris's drawings, I believe, have become uh, album. I mean, have become T-shirt designs as well for the uh, for the band. So what comes next? Out My Way, I think, comes after Up on the Sun. Tell us just a little bit about Out My Way. Yeah, that was a uh, EP in... Uh, what happened was Kurt Kirkwood broke his finger. Uh, someone closed the van door on his finger, I believe. So uh, they, um, I think they had different plans for that, and it just wound up becoming a uh, EP. And um, I think it's personally a really great album still. I mean, I'm pretty much a fan. I, I can honestly say the Meat Puppets never put out a, a bad album. Uh, each, each one of their albums has something unique uh, about it, and uh, that one – Songwriting got a little more refined, perhaps. Uh, that may be one of their more focused albums as far as the songwriting. But, um, yeah, I think it was a good, uh, it was a good, uh, place to go from the previous album, uh, Up on the Sun. My introduction to Meat Puppets was hearing, uh, Good Golly Miss Molly on a, a radio show in San Diego once. And I was like, that's a very cool cover. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that you know is that 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 just shows how they can cover just about like any you know song and do a, a great version of it. Like like I said, I I heard once um, there's a uh, album they put out a few years ago called Live in Montana, which was recorded I think in 1988, and they do a, a pretty good version of. Um, or you know, I take it back. This may have just been a a, a bootleg. I think I heard them do. Um, All I have to do is dream by the uh, by the Everly Brothers, and it was really great. That was uh, that's 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 probably one of my favorite covers of them. But on, on that uh, album, Alive in Montana, they cover like Sweet Leaf. They cover um, a song called Small Hours, which I think is like an old punk song or new wave song, which then uh, Metallica would 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 cover later. And they do uh, several other uh, songs on that. Uh, Sandman, Woody Guthrie. What? Pardon me. What's that? They do Woody Guthrie. They do uh, Do Re Mi, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, that. And they also do a song called uh, Sandman's Coming or something, which I'm not even sure what that's from, but that's a oh, uh, it was called uh, Cotton Candy Land. That's that song they do on that. Uh, in, in putting that record together, I think they were they were probably trying to show the the variety of what they can do. Right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that that's a, a good album showing them at the time that uh, you know they could uh, do covers and also their own songs and tie it all together with jams and things like that. So, do you do you find the Meat Puppets to be to be good interviews when when you talk with them? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. They were very, very open. I mean, uh, Kurt was very open. Chris, you know, they, they were all, they definitely didn't hold uh, things back. And I could, you know, and part of the um, agreement we came with is, you know, I told them, look, just be honest about everything. Tell me everything that you want. I'll just make this book. Then I'll show it to you. You read it. If there's anything you're not comfortable with, I'll take it out. But, you know, you might as well just, you know, tell me everything. And that's what they did. And I can tell you honestly, they didn't tell me to take one single thing out. They just were like, no, leave it. Leave everything in there. We want mm-hmm. it to be a, a true, you know, story of us. So I have to give them credit that they uh, did that, you know, especially Chris during his uh, period with, you know, drugs. And he wound up losing his wife to drugs and he got shot. You know, he could have just said, no, I don't want to talk about that. That's a very dark period of my life. But he was uh, willing to go on um, record with that. And I think, not mistaken, that's probably the first time he's ever really discussed that time of his life in such uh, great um, detail. I mean, I know he's probably discussed that a bit, but I know, you know, this was the first time he sat down and really you know, talked a lot about what it was like being in jail and finally getting off drugs and reconnecting with Kurt because, Kurt and Chris didn't talk for almost about 10 years uh, due to that whole uh, thing because Chris was, you know, pretty much wild and just doing crazy stuff. And Kurt, you know, didn't want to uh, get, you know, dragged down with him. So he had to kind of cut him off for a while there. Uh, you put Mirage and Wavos into one chapter. How? Why do they only – why do they get combined? Because I believe they uh, were recorded together at the same time and um, they're kind of like a brother or a sister album sort of. Um, so I think that, uh, that it, it just made sense to kind of put those both uh, together. Are, the, and, are those the two that came out? I think they came out in the same year, didn't yeah, they? And, yeah. And I was going to say, and, uh, also they both came out in the year 1987. So, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I would say Mirage is probably the Meat Puppets most uh, underrated album. People tend to write it off because there's a lot of like, um, there's guitar synthesizer on it. Uh, there's also, uh, electronic drums. But I think the songwriting is great. I think the songs are very interesting. The performances are great. I, I, I think that, that's an album that I, I always liked. But by doing this book, I went back and listened to it again. And I definitely uh, was able to uh, see it in a whole different light. And that's a album that people should go back and give a second chance. I think they'd probably like it. It's a little bit more of a, a straightforward rocker, right? A little bit, but I mean, it's, you know, not like a hard rock, I wouldn't say. It's definitely not one of the more hard rock albums because it's all, uh, you know, not like heavy guitar and things like that. So it's, uh, maybe, I wouldn't say their most like new wavy album, but maybe their most experimental album, you could say. Uh, Wavos? I'm a, a very big fan of that album. That's, uh, that right. was influenced a lot by, uh, ZZ Top, which is one of their uh, big influences as well. Yeah, besides the Grateful Dead, the, uh, ZZ, I would say that uh, ZZ Top is one of their top influences as well, and you can you can definitely hear it in that album, Wavos. There's a lot of Billy Gibbons type guitar riffs and also guitar playing on that. Yeah, that's what I was suggesting earlier. I might have misspoke. The the Wavos is a more of a straight ahead rock album than Mirage. Yes, yeah, yeah. I definitely, I would say Wavos is one of their uh, straight ahead rock albums, and uh, yeah, it just shows how uh, they can switch that they could change you know like you know gears like that and they could still be on the top of their game you know doing a very experimental album with all these like synthesizers and they go back to uh you know a a zz top you know rocking album definitely shows that they can pull off just about anything Mm -hmm. so next comes uh monsters Mm -hmm. and uh this is going to be their last sst record right but but even there 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 was some uh there there was some uh 
conflict with the band and this record and SST Records. Can you right. talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. And something else which I learned from this, from doing this book, which I found very, very funny and also very interesting, was uh, that album always had a strange sound to it to me because it's hard rock, but it's also uh, electronic drums. So it's that album may be a merger between Wavos and also uh, Mirage. But uh, when I asked Kurt about that album, he said he was listening to a lot of Def Leppard at that time and that he actually set out with that album to record a Def Leppard sounding album. And I went back and listened to it. Suddenly it all completely made sense that that's what it was. So I, I, I find that to be pretty interesting. And, you know, and again, that just goes back to how uh, the meat puppets were always very daring and they also didn't care less about, you know, different types of musical categories. They're willing to listen to anything and let it uh, seep into their own sound. So that's something that I think is, uh, you should definitely be uh, commended by them. And yeah, as far as that album, uh, they were, I think, offered a, rec- a record contract with uh, Atlantic Records, and they said that uh, Greg Greg Jin from SST, uh, for whatever reason, didn't want them to leave SST, so he pretty much killed that deal. And uh, there was all like uh, there was then a big uh, battle uh, between uh, the Meat Puppets and also the label. Eventually, they put that they put out that album through uh, SST, and that was their last uh, studio album. And then they uh, eventually got off that label. And uh, Kurt says that he was uh, lucky because they were able to come to a agreement that eventually he got all the rights back to all those 80s albums. And that was right around the time that they did the Nirvana uh, appearance. And that was also right around the time that they reissued all those albums on Ryko Disc. So it was, uh, you know, for them, it just turned out a very, very lucky thing that they got all the rights to their albums back because they were able to make a lot more uh, revenue, you know, from uh, when suddenly they had a lot of attention from their uh, Nirvana connection. Make the, the So after Monsters, they do get to London Records, which is a, a major label right. in all respects, and they make Forbidden Places with Pete Anderson, who who is kind of a, at the time, a, a, a big name. Um, talk. You've already said a little bit, but say a little more, please, about Forbidden Places. Yeah, Pete Anderson uh, is associated quite often with uh, Dwight uh, Yoakam, who's obviously a very famous uh, country singer. And, um, yeah, he had a bit of a uh, influence on that album, but it's not a straight country album. Uh, there's definitely some, uh, you know, rocking things on that. That was, like I said before, that was the first album I personally ever heard of theirs, and I was uh, blown away by it. And that was, it's not a grungy type album, but I heard it right in the middle of listening to grunge music, and I could tell that that was a great album. And it uh, really didn't sound like much at the time. Uh, the songwriting is really good on that album. Uh, I think that's when also Kurt Kirkwood's uh, vocals started to really mature. And that's when he started to become a really good singer. As far as a uh, traditional singer, I mean, because I always, I always did like his singing. I always thought his singing fit the uh, songs really well throughout all their albums. But that was when it became more like he became more of a traditional good singer, I think. So, yeah, that's a good album. That's a album, too, that a lot of people tend to overlook. That's a uh, album people should give a second listen to as well. And I don't I don't think it commercially it, it pretty much flopped. Yeah, it didn't really do much. And uh, which which is a shame, because I think that's one of the stronger albums song for song. You know, there's definitely some great songs in that that could have uh, been played on radio, you know, but just for whatever reason, it just uh, fell through the cracks. Chicago at the time, and they did play Sam a little bit on, mm-hmm. on the radio. But that, that was the only one I think I ever heard. Yeah, I have a friend who said I think he saw the video played once or twice on like 120 minutes at the time. 
now we get into to their commercial uh, success. It's between Forbidden Places and Two Eye to Die mm. that the connection between Meat Puppets and Nirvana takes place, right? So, yes. so tell us how that occurs. Yeah, Kurt Cobain was always a big fan of the band, and he invited them to open up for them on a few tour, a few dates on the In Utero tour, which was, went on to be Nirvana's last uh, tour ever. And uh, they, they didn't open up the whole tour. They opened up maybe like a week or two, I believe. And during that time was when Nirvana was offered the MTV Unplugged appearance. And um, he wanted to cover one or two Meat Puppets songs, but he, they were having a hard time figuring it out. So Kirk Kirkwood was just like, hey, why don't I just come on? You know, actually him and uh, Chris, why don't why don't me and my brother just come on and we'll just play him and you can sing him. And that's what they wound up doing. And instead of just one song, they wound up doing uh, three songs. And that's probably what the Meat Puppets are best known for, is their MTV Unplugged appearance with uh, Nirvana, which I think by far is the best Unplugged performance ever by, like, any band. I think that's the best one. And, uh, you know, again, they were just lucky to be there at the right, pl- right place at the right time. Maybe because um, Forbidden Places and Nevermind come out, like within a month of each other, I can't remember which comes out first. I think maybe Forbidden Places comes out first. Yeah. But but I I think that might, in my mind, be one of the reasons that Forbidden Places tanks because once Nevermind comes out, everything before it is pretty much you know uh, put in the dustbin. I mean, I, I would say with that yes and no because 1991 there you know that's when like for instance Primus put out Sailing the Seas of Cheese and that was a, a pretty big album for them that came out in the spring of 91 I believe. You know, it's like they're like certain bands, you know, and also Jane's, um, Jane's uh, addiction was still, I, yeah, they, they were, yeah, they, they broke up at the end of 91. So they put out uh, Ritual De Lo Habitual in 1990. So, yeah, so that's, that's 1990. That's not 1991. But I mean, certain bands, I think, were still thriving that weren't straight ahead of uh, grunge. You know, uh, Smashing Pumpkins put out Gish around that time. They're not really like a straight grunge band. And also Nine Inch Nails was still, uh, you know, Kind of coming up at that point, so I wouldn't say that that every band just because grunge got popular took a hit. You know, certain bands, like I said, Primus was able to, uh, you know, still become very very, very popular after uh, grunge became, you know, the uh, hip type of uh, rock music to listen to for the uh, mainstream. So then, Too High to Die, and that, as you said, is their best-selling record. It went gold. Um, and you say it's what it may be your favorite. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I would definitely put that in my top five. It's uh, a pretty raw album, which um, I think is pretty impressive because uh, I think uh, the label was probably putting pressure on the Meat Puppets to uh, succeed with this album, which they obviously did with the song Backwater. But they uh, hooked up with their friend from uh, Butthole Surfers, Paul Leary, the uh, guitarist who was getting involved in uh, producing albums at that point. And he did a really good job keeping the uh, sound very raw. But again, it was the songwriting. You know, again, uh, Kurt Kirkwood always seems to rise to the occasion with coming up with great albums worth of songs. Um, you know, he came up with some really, really great songs in that, like a song called Violet Eyes, which uh, Scott Ashton from the Stooges uh, says is one of his favorite uh, Meat Puppet songs ever. And uh, yeah, I think that that was, you know, again, they just happened to hit a home run when they, you know, pretty much, you know, I guess at that point needed to if they wanted to stay on a, a major label and. Uh, that album, uh, because of Kirk Cobain committing suicide, they uh, MTV started playing the uh, MTV uh, Unplugged special over and over again. And that's right when they Meat Puppets put out the Backwater video and song, and that became a big hit. And then uh, the Meat Puppets were able to get a tour with uh, 
Stone Temple Pilots that were very, very popular at the time. So just in that year alone, that's what really uh, brought the meat puppets to the masses. You uh, devote two chapters to the year 1994. What's important about that year? Yeah, I mean, that to me was probably the Meat Puppet's craziest, busiest year because there was just so much going on between success and tours and putting out the album and also Kurt Cobain dying. I mean, that was a, a year of uh, a lot of like weird stuff going on. And also uh, that was the beginning of the end for the band because that was when it was during the Stone Temple Pilots tour that uh, Chris became pretty bad off with uh, heroin. So uh, although they were having all this great success, you know, and people from the outside, you know, like, for instance, me as a fan at the time, I just figured, oh, well, this is great. This is, you know, they finally scored their big breakthrough. This will put them over the top. Their next album will probably sell more. And, you know, in two or three years, they'll be headlining arenas and stuff themselves. But uh, it just didn't happen that way because uh, Chris kind of just uh, self-destructed. Um, and, uh, they were able to put out one more album, but, uh, it just was never really the same. And the record label pulled the plug on supporting them. And, uh, then by 1996, the band was done. Interesting. Uh, they, they added the second guitarist, Troy Mice. Is it pronounced yep. Mice? Yes. Um, and, and according to Troy, I mean, Chris was just completely abusive to him. Why, why do you suppose, uh, Chris is, obviously resented Troy being in the band. I, I would have, I mean, I don't really know exactly what was going on, but yeah, I mean, uh, from what Troy says, that was, you know, his side of the story. And I don't know, I mean, being bad off with drugs and everything, you know, that may have had something to do with it with Chris. Cause I I've, I've met Chris once or twice and he's always been a very kind, nice guy. And I've spoken to him several times on the phone. He's always been very uh, cool on the phone. So, uh, I don't know, maybe just like that and maybe just the pressures of being on the road and uh, the fact that they didn't, that was the first time that it was not just the Kirkwood brothers and also Derek, that was the first time they brought a outsider in to their, you know, band. So maybe that had something to do with it. It was probably like a, a, a combination of like, you know, several things. Maybe Chris wanted, or maybe Chris felt that by bringing in a fourth person, maybe his, you know, uh, suggestions wouldn't be maybe heard as much or, you know, songwriting and stuff like that. I'm not really too sure exactly with that, why, you know, that that type of thing happened between Troy. Uh, Troy. I, I think one of the, the things that come out comes out really nice in your book is this relationship between Kurt and Chris. And I, I'm wondering if maybe, you know, uh, Troy was, you know, Chris saw that as a bit of a, a threat to, to their brother relationship, maybe. All right, can you just repeat that? Because the, 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 the question just broke up a little bit. Um, uh, one of the nice things that comes out in your book, I think, is the relationship between Kurt and Chris as brothers. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if Troy coming into the band, uh, you know, didn't threat, at least Chris might have seen that as a bit of a threat to that relationship. Yeah, possible. I think that's what even Troy says in the book. I think he says that Chris may have felt a little threatened or something. But, uh, but then he says, but, you know, it was Kurt who invited Troy in the band. It's not like that he, you know, weaseled his way in the band or anything. And he was also friends with the band for uh, quite some time before he was asked to join. He, uh, I think, first uh, met them in 87 or 88. He saw them play, I think, in uh, St. Louis and uh, became friends with them. And they, you know, would hang out throughout the years and they became friends. And that's and he also uh, wrote for the band called the uh, Feelies. That's how uh, I think they discovered that he was involved in music himself. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed like a good fit at the time for them, for him to join. So, um the band kind of comes to a, to a, to a halt with after no joke. Um, mm -hmm. um, 
Well, well actually, tell just briefly a little bit about No Joke. How how do you like that record? Yeah, I actually love that album when it came out, and I've gone back to it and listened to it from time to time, and there there is some great stuff on that. But like uh, Derek says in the book, um, the songs are maybe a little bit more uh, planned out. Uh, the performances aren't as natural as or like organic sounding as they were on the uh, Too High to Die album. Um, it seemed like maybe a little bit more stiff, you could say. But uh, again, I, I think there's some really, really great songs on that. Um, I think that's an album that a lot of people overlook, too. Um, when, it, when, when that album came out, when I first heard it, I thought that was going to be another really big seller. But um, again, like as I talk in the book, uh, one of the records, I think, saw what was going on with Chris and just decided that they weren't going to put a lot of uh, push behind it and they didn't really promote it. And, um, yeah, the album never really got the attention that I think it deserved. Have, uh, um, no joke. When I listen to it, it, it seems to reflect the times of the band a little bit. It seems like a darker album, uh, thematically. Yeah, definitely. There is definitely some, uh, darker type things. Yeah, that's also, I think, uh, Derek mentions too that there's some dark kind of, uh, there's like a dark feel to it. Yeah, because at the time when that album was being written, uh, Kurt and Chris's mother was dying from cancer. So that I think probably affected the you know the Kirkwood's mindset at the time and also the songwriting, but you know again I think it was a great album and it definitely uh, shows a you know time of the band that you know was dark and there's you know some uh, bad stuff going on but they were able to capture it on a, on an album. After no joke, um, Chris goes into his heroin addiction, which gets pretty dark. He goes to jail. Um, Derek kind of gets his, a, a straight kind of life. Uh, what, do, what, what does Kurt do during the, what, it's like 10 or 12 years, right? Where they're kind of not a band. Yeah, I think, um, it was probably about like 10 years, I think. And, um, yeah, Kurt, I never really gave up playing. He put out, uh, well, he, he, he did a very good side band that I've always liked. Well, it wasn't a side band. It was actually a, a full-time band called Eyes Adrift with the drummer from Sublime. And also Chris from Nirvana on bass, which I think that album is great. That's also an album that I think not a lot of people uh, have heard or have given it a chance. And it was for some reason not really well received in the press, but I always thought that was a great album. It's a, a self-titled album that came out, I think, in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, prior to that, uh, Kurt tried to carry on. Um, he... Uh, was uh, he was in a band uh the it was titled the Royal Neanderthal Orchestra and then uh, in, in order for them to get an album out they had to name it Meat Puppets again even though Kurt was the only uh band member that people would even like you know, recognize from the uh, classic lineup because Derek wasn't in it and also Chris wasn't in it so they put out one album uh around I think it was 1999 they put out an album which uh, may be their weakest album, but it has some uh, pretty good things on it. You know, again, not, I don't think there's ever been a Meat Puppets album that's just been a complete horrible album. You know, there's some, there's some good things on it. The album's called uh, Golden Lies. And then also uh, Kurt put out a solo album, I think, after Eyes Adrift called Snow, which I also like. That's like a mellow, acoustic, folky type album. So, yeah, he kept it. was with Pete good. Anderson, too, right? Yes, that yeah, that he got back together with... Uh, on that album and that's also an album that I think is very uh, underrated um, when I interviewed uh, Dean DeLeo from the Stone Temple Pilots for the book he uh, talked about how much he uh, loves that album and that, that that's like a beautiful album and yeah that's an album I think that a lot of people should go back and give a second chance they'd probably enjoy back they've been they've been back together since uh, 2007 
Yes. Um, how how did how did the the get together the, the get together come about? Well, uh, when when Chris got out of uh, jail, he was uh, clean and sober, and uh, slowly Kurt and Chris got back together again. And then I guess uh, with their relationship that you know kind of healed, then they were able to start talking music again, and they started. Uh, they got back together with a drummer who was a fan of theirs named Ted uh, Marcus, who I also interviewed for the book. And they did a couple of albums with him called Rise to Your Knees and also Sewn Together. And then uh, after that, uh, they got another drummer named uh, Shannon Som, who played on the album uh, Golden Lies back, uh, in the, uh, back in 1999. And I think that the lineup now with the Meat Puppets is uh, definitely a great lineup. And I think Shannon brings a lot to the, uh, to the band. I think his uh, drumming is a little bit uh, different than uh, Derek's. He's more of uh, more of like a hard rock drummer, but he really adds a lot to the band. And um, yeah, I think uh, the uh, I, I just think that they've uh, done the right thing. I mean, like like I was saying before, when I saw them last year, they're as good. Well, they are obviously better now than they were the uh, when I saw them back in uh, 1995. I think that they uh, put on a, a great show, and I think with also Shannon in the band, they. Uh, we're definitely on the right track, and I'm curious to hear what they're going to do with their next album, which, from what I heard, they just finished recording. And also, I, I forgot to mention, they put out an album with uh, Shannon in 2011 called uh, Lollipop, which that also is a great album. I think that, that if people listening to this that know the Meat Puppets a little bit and haven't heard that album, they should jef- definitely check out that album. That's, I think, one of their uh, best albums ever. And it just came out in 2011. So that just shows that they're still putting out great music, you know, which is, isn't the case with bands that have been along. I've, with bands that, that have been around for so long, but the Meat Puppets are still putting out good, vibrant music. So that's it you know, shows how uh, you know just the uh, you know type of band they are. To kind of start wrapping things up, where where do you think uh, uh, Meat Puppets stand in uh, in the history of rock? And are we going to be thinking about them 50 years from now? And and where do you see Kurt? Because he's the main songwriter. Where do you see Kurt as an artist and a songwriter? So there's there's a few questions in there. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, one of the main reasons also why I did this book is I thought the Meat Puppets never get the credit that they deserve. So, and, and also I've always just wanted to read a uh, book about them, uh, you know. So that's why I set out to do this book. But yeah, I mean, hopefully this book, if it, I'm sure fans will enjoy it. But if it could bring attention, you know, and maybe get them some uh, new fans, that would be great. Um, but uh, as far as the future, I, I would like to think that the Meat Puppets now are just going to keep on putting out albums and touring because I think that now they're hitting a pretty good stride right now and I think the next album should be really good uh, you know because like I said that last album Lollipop was very good and also the uh, uh, concert I saw was great so I'm uh, curious to see them again curious to see where they're going to go from here um, yeah, and it's also good to see that Kurt and Chris now were you know back uh, as you know they're you know, friends besides also being brothers again and that Chris is doing well and has his life straightened out <clears throat> See, so, yeah, I think the band's in a, a pretty good place, and it definitely, uh, I think, bodes well for the future. Greg, what, I know you uh, just recently came out with a book about uh, the New York Islanders, right? Yes. Besides rock music, I also do uh, some sports books, and I just put out a book about the 1980s New York Islanders that won four Stanley Cups in a row. The album is called Dynasty, the Oral History of the New York Islanders, 1972 through 1984. And, uh, yeah, similar to, like I was saying before, I always do the oral uh, history format, so this is no different. I did the same thing where I interviewed a lot of the players and coaches uh, during that era, 
and I was able to uh, get the uh, story on that team that uh, won four Stanley Cups and won 19 straight playoff series, which had, no other professional sports team has ever done, and I predict will never do again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and judging by uh, your prolific nature, I, I'm assuming you're probably working on something else right now, are you? I can say that I'm working on two projects currently, but uh, I cannot go public with what they are, unfortunately. <laughs> but when I but when I can, I will let you know. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just uh, for for people out that want to see what I'm up to, you could always go to my uh, Twitter uh, page. That like I always give like you know little things as to, like what I'm doing. I also post um, if I have a new book out or if I have a new article with Rolling Stone, and that people can go to is uh, twitter.com/slash/gregpredowriter. Perfect. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Greg. It's a, it's a great book, and and you're right. I mean, it's it's the first book about me puppets ever out, and it's important that it's out there. Um, yeah. And. Uh, Thank you for being on my show. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the kind words. Yeah, I hope everyone checks out the book and also enjoys it. Okay. Okay, thanks, Matt. You've been listening to a conversation with Greg Prato about his book, Too High to Die, Meet the Meat Puppets, self-published at lulu.com in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt smith Warman. Thanks for listening.